Good evening, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and let's open together to James chapter 5. I want to welcome Mark and Jody back with us. I want to make a opening comment that Mark, the anointing with oil, I don't think it applies to sunburns. So I've heard that you have some interesting sunburns. And I don't think that's what this means here, so we're glad, we're glad John. <laughs> Aloe vera, there we go. Let's, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off on Sunday, um, but let me start by reading in James chapter 5, and we'll read verses 13 down to 16. James five thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power when it is working. With that great promise, let's pray for God's help. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather once again with our family. We thank you that you have sacrificed so dearly that we might be united, that we might be clean. And we pray, Father, that you would cause a spirit of unity to dwell among us. Father, we know that there are many among us who are suffering. Many of us who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Many of us are dealing with physical problems and sicknesses and, and anxious, uh, anxious doctor's appointments. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace and the help we need. Father, many of us are cheerful. And so we sing your praise because you've been so good and so kind to us, sinners deserving of nothing but hell. And Father, as we approach this text tonight, we want to know how to please you. We want to know how to love you. We want to know how to care for each other. So would you help us? I pray, Father, that I would not contribute to confusion in any way, but rather that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let your word remain. Let what is true remain in our hearts and bear fruit and encourage us to faithful living, we pray. And it's in your name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to pick up where we left off on Sunday here in James chapter 5. And since we're going to be building very carefully, we only made it through verse uh, 14, 13 and 14 on Sunday. So we're going to work through uh, 15 tonight. Um, these, are very, these ideas are very closely related. So I want to remind you of what we have talked about so far. If you weren't here, just the big picture is that James is giving us instructions. He's given instructions specifically for those who are sick to call the elders of their local church and to ask them to come pray for them and to anoint them with oil. 
Now, to be sure we're on the same page, let me just briefly remind you of what we've discussed. You'll, you'll remember that we discussed that when we come to difficult passages of Scripture, and this is a difficult passage, it's uh, difficult primarily in the question of application. What do we do with this? How do we, how do we apply this in our context? When we approach difficult passages, we need to do so humbly and cautiously. So you're not going to hear from me a dogmatic explanation of how we should apply this specific thing. We're going we're gonna to approach this humbly. This is a difficult passage, and one of the things that makes it difficult is that there are no parallel passages in the New Testament of how to apply this, this practice. We don't have anywhere to double-check our interpretation or double-check our application. So what we've said so far is that even though we're going to try to answer the hard questions, we're going to focus our attention on the clear and simple meaning of the text. And we're going to let the plain and obvious meaning drive the way that we interpret and apply this passage to our lives. So what we've seen so far is that this passage, especially starting in verse 13, shows us that this passage is primarily about prayer. In verses 13 through 18, prayer is mentioned in every single verse. The central focus of this text is not the anointing of oil. It is not the hope of healing. It is the importance of prayer, specifically praying in all circumstances. And I pray and I hope that this week you have been encouraged and have new faith to be praying in the midst of different circumstances. We saw in verse 13 that it doesn't matter what our circumstances are. We have the full spectrum of occasions to pray. Whether we are suffering, whether we are facing trials and difficulty, or whether we are cheerful, we are called to pray and not to forget God as we're prone to do, but to include God in the midst of our sufferings and in the midst of our cheerfulness. But in verse 14, we saw James give specific directions to those who are sick. And we get the impression here that the sickness he's referring to is probably severe. It's probably not a sunburn. It's probably sick enough to where the person is unable to get out of bed because the elders are praying over, over him. Um, But that person is given the initiative to seek out pastoral care, to seek out the pastoral care of the elders of his local church. We saw that this means a couple things. First of all, it means that these are people who must humbly admit that they need help. They need care. Just as prayer is a humble expression towards God saying, God, I need help, so is asking for pastoral care or the care of other Christians who are around you. You're saying, hey, I need help. Help me think through this. Help me pray through this. But we've seen that James assumes that believers, that the believers he's writing to, are going to be involved within the context of a local church. They are going to experience the Christian life within the context of a local church with other Christians and leaders. And what we've seen is that God is gracious to us, that he does not intend for us to suffer alone. Isn't that a blessing? God does not call you to grieve or suffer alone. He has placed us within the context of other believers, and this is that context. He does not intend for us to suffer alone, but within the context of a local church with pastors who are qualified and responsible to take spiritual care of the flock. 
We've also seen that what the elders are supposed to do. Elders is another word for pastors in the New Testament. They're used interchangeably. But when these pastors are called, they're going to do two things. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to pray. Okay, They're going to pray on behalf of the one who is sick. That's straightforward. The second thing they're going to do is anoint this person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, we spent a good amount of time trying to understand the meaning and the significance of this anointing with oil. We walked through some different options, and we ruled out some several funny ones and several popular interpretations. We know this is not, this is not a magic potion. The oil does not have any special powers. This is not a ritualistic type of option that, that our Catholic friends have taken to the extreme. And we also ruled out that this is probably not a medicinal sort of uh, transaction. That um, Because it's one of the main things we saw is that the pastors are called to do this, not the, not the local doctor. This is, there's a spiritual component. Why would, why would the pastors be called if the oil was for just medicinal purposes? And the other thing we thought about was that even though in the ancient world, oil was often used as a conditioner and sometimes even as a mild medicine, it's difficult to understand how oil would be a helpful treatment with all the variety of illnesses that they would have faced and that we faced face today. And what this left us with was with the position that, that I'll recommend to you that the anointing of the oil is a rich, physical, symbolic act that sets the sick believer aside for special care and special ministry. And since this was an instruction that was given to the pastors and the elders of the church, of a local church, not the apostles, that we can continue to practice this today. This is not just for the apostolic age, but something that we can and should continue today. And remember, a key thing here is that it is not the oil that makes the sick person well, but it's the power of God through prayer. And we've seen that since, um, one thing we didn't talk about much, but one thing to keep in mind is that since this is the only place in the New Testament that we see, uh, especially in the epistles, the only place we see the anointing of the sick with oil, I think we can conclude pretty reasonably that we don't have to do this, right? You can pray for someone. What I mean by that is you can pray for someone who is sick without anointing them uh, with oil. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Pray, the oil is not a necessary requirement for prayer. Is what, is what I'm getting at. But that still leaves us with quite a few unanswered questions, especially as we come here to verse 15, where we were left asking, what should we expect from this practice? Or more specifically, what is the prayer of faith? That is the key phrase that we're going to be trying to untangle in this text tonight. Now, the difficulty for us in this passage is the certainty in which James speaks. This would not be hard if James said, sometimes he will be raised up or sometimes he will be healed, right? There, there is, James is speaking with absolute certainty. I hope you noticed that in the text, he doesn't seem to anticipate any possibility of failure. He seems to be saying that if the elders come and pray in faith, and if they anoint with oil, then that prayer will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and the sins will be forgiven. So, uh, James doesn't give any sort of time frame. He is giving a categorical 
statement that if you do this, this will follow. And herein lies the problem for us. Now, we can start by thinking about what this doesn't mean, right? That's often, that's often helpful. Um, I don't think that James is suggesting that every pastor of every local church has been given the promise of unconditional healing. Okay. I, don't, I don't think that every pastor everywhere has been given the gift of unconditional healing. I don't think that James just solved the, the health care crisis here. And I don't think that we are now safeguarded from dying of illnesses or cancer or disease. But the Bible additionally makes it clear to us that though God is able to heal and often willing to heal, we have to recognize that there are times where it is clear to us it is not always God's will to heal us. Right? We see that in the scriptures. Perhaps one of the most famous and the most helpful examples for us is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember when the Apostle Paul was complaining about the thorn in the flesh, right? And he prayed three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh, which I think was probably his failing, eye, his failing eyesight. He prayed three times, and not only did God clearly say no, but he explained to Paul that the purpose of his struggle, the purpose of him having to live with this illness, you could say, was to magnify the strength of Christ. Additionally, there are other times, if we just talked about Paul, right, there are other times where Paul prayed for the healings of others, right, such as Epaphrodites in, in Philippians chapter 2 who was ill and almost died, um, or tro, Trophimus, and, and they were not healed. So if Paul isn't able to get a guarantee here, then I think it'd be safe for us to imagine that we can't and just to understand that it's not always God's will to heal. However, this text means something, right? It does, it does mean something. And we know from the scriptures, we can't forget that there are many times where God does heal in response to prayer. And so we can and should understand that there are times where he will heal in response to prayer and the anointing of oil. So I think there can be a danger to be conditioned by our small expectations of God. And we need to fight against that. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But we should remember, God's not, God's not teasing us here. He's not, he's not playing a trick on us or trying to confuse us or, or needlessly get our hopes up. There is, church, there is real help here for us when we're sick. There is real grace for us when we are struggling, when we're ill, and when we are sick, and when we minister to others. We need to be quick and eager to help and give the grace that we, that we have. But if, if verse 15 is not a blanket guarantee of healing, then what, what is it? What does it mean? Well, I suppose this leaves us with several major options, four, four or five uh, pretty common options of how to solve this passage. And we'll, we'll sort through those and see where we end up. There are some who say that the one who is sick here, that this is a, another way, though perhaps a little bit awkward, a little clumsy, to refer to trials, right? That the sickness doesn't just mean physical sickness, it means all of the types of trials that one might face. It's, it's referring not to just physical suffering, but suffering in, in general, right? Remember, we've seen that 
trials and difficulties are a major theme in James. And back in, as you could say, they are one of the, pro, I mean, the prominent theme of James. That, that James has been giving us instructions of how to view our trials. And back in verse 7, remember James 5, 7 through 11, he has just been explaining to us how to be patient in our trials. So it's, good, it's not a massive stretch to think that right after this, now he's explaining how to, uh, how to find relief through, through prayer, relief from God. But I think that to say that sickness here, right, the one who is, is sick, that if that was referring mainly to just generic difficulties and trials, that is just it's butchering the language, right? It, is, it butchers the Greek and it butchers the English. It's, it's just too much of a stretch, I think, on what these words mean and the way that they're generally used in the New Testament. So we can set that aside, I think. Another approach is to think about this as a proverb. Some say that this is a proverb. So now if you think about it, when we read the Proverbs, we don't necessarily interpret, uh, interpret all the Proverbs literally. Okay? What I mean by that is when we read, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart of it. Okay, we don't interpret that as an absolute guarantee that a good parent produces a godly child, right? We we understand that re- rather that generally speaking, children with godly parents are far more likely to to walk with the Lord in adulthood. That it's it's more of a general outcome, right? The same thing can be said of not just the Proverbs, but also, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, right? I don't know of any of you that have chopped your hand off, right? So we understand that when Jesus says to, you know, gouge out an eye, we, we, take, we don't interpret that quite as literally. And, and if you add to that, James seems to be, there, there, there are some who say that the book of James is a wisdom book, that it should be in many ways interpreted like the Proverbs sometimes. That, uh, and he depends heavily on wisdom-type language, right? You remember he, in chapter 1, he's talking about wisdom from above, chapters 1 and 2. And then uh, he depends heavily on the teaching of Jesus as his, half, as his half-brother. So you can't guarantee that the one who is, they're saying that you can't guarantee that the one who is anointed with oil and prayed for will be healed. But generally speaking, like proverbially, it would happen often or that it's intended to be a pro- teach us like a proverb would. But I'm not ready to go there either. I don't think we have enough of a prop, the style of a proverb to go there. So I think we should set that aside as well. A third option is that this, and this is nice and tidy and clean, except for I don't think it's right, is that, that this is the type of healing that is unique only to the apostolic age, when the apostles lived, right? So, so they say that since it appears that the apostles and disciples had a very special set of gifts, some would argue that this is a practice that only applies to when they were alive and, and had these gifts. For example, you will remember in uh, Luke chapter 10, do you remember when Jesus sent out the 72? Well, one of the things he told them to do was, and I'll, let me read from uh, verse 9, he says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, so since this was only available in the apostolic age, they say this whole passage has no real application to us. So we can just move on through and just acknowledge that it was there. Okay, Um, 
The problem with this view, I think, is, as I mentioned on Sunday, is that when James gave these instructions, he wasn't writing them to the apostles. He was writing them to pastors and to Christians in local churches. He is, he's giving this to the saints of the dispersion, right? It's, it's for pastors scattered all throughout the local churches. It's a broadly written letter. And though we no longer have apostles... We certainly have pastors and elders. Every single biblical church does. So why would he give the instructions to that office? So I think we can set that aside as well. Y'all with me? Okay. A fourth option, and we're getting warmer, is that you could see this as, I'm trying to think of a better word. I couldn't think of one. It's, it's, it's like a special endowment or a special gift of faith. Okay, let me try to explain what I mean. What I mean is that in some circumstances, God may give the pastors in this situation a special measure of faith that is in relation to that specific problem. So, one person is sick, and so she calls for her elders to come and anoint her with oil and pray for her. And as they come, they sense that God is giving them a special, subjective sense that in this one particular instance, God is going to raise up this person and she'll be healed. Okay? So, it's, it's a measure of faith that they say is beyond the realm of a simple, let's call it day-to-day type of faith, but it's, it's laying hold of something that is more specific that, that has been revealed to them. Now, this could be what the Apostle Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 12. You can either hear as I read it or you can follow along uh, in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, Paul says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and the other the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues, okay? Now, this probably doesn't clear it up for you, might raise more questions, but what some could say, what some do say is that this is, in James 5, this is not the gift of healing, but rather this is the temporary gift of faith that Paul is, is referencing here. That, it is a, that it's a gift of faith in one instance that's linked to one person who is sick and is used in one specific time. Now, I think there's a lot to commend about this position, but it certainly opens the door for other difficulties. The key thing is that this is a very subjective sense of leading. It is a prayer from a spirit-led but subjective conviction that it is God's will to heal this person with this specific instance. And since it's subjective, the problem is that pastors are sinful. Right? You knew that. And pastors are finite. And pastors are limited in knowledge and in wisdom. Right? So, so the problem is that we're prone to make mistakes. 
Well, perhaps this is why, since it's so sensitive, that James is restricting the anointing of oil just to pastors, right? We've seen this is not something that a local member does for another local member. This is something that pastors do in ministry to, uh, to a local member. And maybe James is, is safeguarding this against abuse, that is that the men whom a congregation has selected and affirmed to be gifted men of integrity with spiritual discernment are perhaps in a better position to, to do this. So that's, that's a helpful argument. And additionally, you'll notice that in this text, James is referring not to one pastor. It's not one pastor that's to go. It's to, to, it's to plur, it's a plural. The word is plural. It's, it's more than one. And so what could be said is that it could be that this is another safeguard against a subjective sense. So if God is giving a sense of, hey, healing is going to happen in this instance, it would not just be one person who is saying it, but they would have to find unity and say that we sense that God is giving a sense of clarity that he's going to heal in this situation. There are many, many verses that, there are many verses in the Bible that give us this kind of confidence. You remember Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus said, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then he goes on to say, For where there are two or three gathered in my name, you'll notice that phrase is back in James 5, in my name, there I am among them. Now, I'm going to leave you to your own conclusions about how to interpret this text. But I want to point out another very important consideration that I think fit, I don't, I don't know how separate it is, it, it fits in, but the text you'll notice is describing that this prayer is a prayer of faith, okay, or prayer in faith. It could, it could go either way, and that it's also a prayer that is done in the name of the Lord. Well, we should remember that true prayer, right, prayer of faith and prayer that is in the name of the Lord will always be completely built upon the sovereignty of God, right? So there, you can't have a prayer of faith that is demanding that God do something according to your own wishes because that's not prayer, right? Prayer of faith is, is acknowledging that God is God. This means that, that we should have confidence of God's willingness to hear us, to hear our prayers. But we should also have confidence in God's ability and willingness to answer and his ability to heal. But we should also have confidence that God will do what is best. We can't have a prayer in God's name and we can't have a prayer of faith if we don't believe that God is going to do what is best. So mix that in with, with that fourth option. I mean, it's, it's always submitting to God. And what I'm saying is that in order for a prayer or any prayer to be a prayer of faith and in order for it to be a prayer that is in God's name, prayer must be submitted and resigned to the sovereign will of God. So even if the elders had a strong sense that God was giving them the gift of faith in a specific instance, they are still submitting their request to God. It is, it's not magic. It's not hocus pocus. It is still submitting a request to God. And remember, friends, we don't pray in our name. We pray in his name. So we don't make demands. 
whether it's for healing or any other circumstance or requests in our life, we make requests and then we resign ourselves to God's providential work. Now, I don't know if this satisfies you enough. Uh, I'm still trying to sort some of this out myself, but I think that we'd be wise to remember that no matter how we interpret this passage, that as I've said, we must always build our thoughts on the clear truth so that we are praying to a God, so that we remember that we're praying to a God who is both wise and sovereign, and he always does what is best. So we don't demand that he submit to our requests, but we trust him. And what I mean by that is when you pray, you have a deep, firm, rooted confidence that is actually peace. Peaceful. You can't, we've talked about this in the past, you can't pray anxiously and have your heart fully resigned to God's will. Those are in contradiction to each other. We, we are trusting him and the way that he works in our lives. But the verse goes on here. We notice the outcome is that the Lord will raise him up. You see that in the text in verse 15. So however we understand verse 15 up to this point, one thing is clear. All right, we can all agree on this. It is the Lord who heals. It's not the oil, not the elders, not even the prayer of faith. The Lord raises, the Lord heals. He alone has such power. Now the word that, that James uses here to, to raise up, it, it's the same word. It was fun looking back through uh, and seeing all the times where this was used. It just reminded I me, mean, almost so often it's specifically involved with the power of God. You have, you have uh, Jesus raising uh, the lame man and Jesus uh, telling the man to pick up your mat and walk, right? Rise up and walk and then you get to where it says Christ rose from the dead. It's the same, it's the same word. It reminds us, friends, that the same power that raised the paralytic is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. This is tapping in to real power. And it reminds us that God has real power over our disease and over our sicknesses. It's, sometimes we forget. I think we kind of live too much in the, well, he can, but he probably won't, right? And we need to remember and meditate on and have confidence that God is actually able to heal. And he's able to restore. So when you pray, don't pray apologizing. Pray with deep conviction that God is able. I think sometimes that we pray such hesitant prayers because we have such a low view of God's power. This is the God who speaks to nothing and something comes into existence, right? You cannot pray too big of prayers. They are small for God, right? No matter what, what it is, th- th- though our prayers must always be surrendered to the sovereignty of God, let me encourage you. Pray with extreme boldness and submit your life to God. I think a lot of times we may be hesitant to pray bold things because we're scared to get our hopes up because we don't really trust God, right? Pray bold prayers and completely throw yourself on God's sovereignty and his goodness. And then comfort yourself. Pray with boldness and then comfort yourself with God's wisdom. I was reflecting on this today and trying to think through how this works in my life because I'm trying to get a sense of how this may be working in, in your life. But one of the reflections I've had is that it is far 
it is, it's not better to, f- let me put it like this, it is far better to fail, okay, to fail in an attempt to exercise faith than to not exercise it at all. You, you see what I'm saying? It's better to fail in your exercise of faith than not even try to exercise faith at all. Should we think that our God, who commands prayers and who delights when we come to him like children to a father, should we think that he's going to belittle us as we try to follow him? Should we think that he's going to turn away in disgust or frustration that we have misguided prayers? Do you think he's going to be frustrated that you asked him for something that is big? (laughs) The Bible, the whole flow of the Bible seems to be the exact opposite. That our prayers are too small. So let me encourage you. Pray. Throw yourself at God's mercy. Has any true prayer of faith been too grand or too difficult for God? Is anything that honors him, pray it with boldness, pleading with him. Sure, our prayers may at times be immature. Sometimes they are misguided and mingled with sin, but doesn't God welcome them anyways? What a promise. What a precious promise. God hears us when we talk to him. The pattern of the scriptures is that we have a God who delights to use feeble, imperfect prayers of children. So pray your feeble, imperfect prayers. Sit back, trust him, and watch. He's going to act. You may not see it. You may not like the timetable, but our prayers are not wasted. We, we don't believe that enough because we don't pray enough. There is no prayer that is wasted. So let's take heart in that. I don't understand why and I don't understand how, but prayer changes things. Doesn't it, church? Prayer changes things. Do you realize that the 60 or so of us who are in this room tonight could go home and pray for Trinity Connect Week in such a way that God would do something different? Do we not have reason to think that from God's word? We're pleading for him to work, pleading for him to show his power, pleading for him to establish his kingdom in Jonesboro, pleading for him to draw the lost to himself. Does that not resonate in God's heart, church? Let's be a church that prays. Let's not just be a church that plans, but be a church that prays. We need power for our good efforts and our good endeavors. Prayer changes things. God invites us to ask. We don't have all the answers. We can't sort through it all the way we want to. So he says, pray. That's the point of James 5. Let's pray. And there's no occasion in which we should not pray. But we come to this final sentence here in verse 15. Where James says, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, all of a sudden, James is now talking about spiritual matters again. He seems to be moving, what I mean is, from the physical sickness to spiritual matters. And those who argue that this whole passage is, is mainly a spiritual interpretation, this, they argue strongly from this final sentence here in verse 15. But we know that in the Bible, and especially in the ancient world, 
sin and sickness were seen to go hand in hand, right? If someone was sick, it's because they sinned. So the sin led to the specific sickness. You could look at the sickness and go find the sin, repent of the sin, and you get healed. That was, that was the common idea. And we see this in the Bible, that uh, sin and sickness goes together. But we need to think about this pretty carefully. There are four things that I think we should note about this final sentence, about this relationship of sickness and sin. The first thing that we see, the first thing we should recognize is that sin may result in illness. Sin may result in illness. We could commit a sin and be, become ill because of it. We see that in the Old Testament in numerous ways. One of the major ways is, you remember, when Israel grumbled against God, what happened? God sent snakes, they bit them, they got sick. Many of them, many of them died. But it's not just in the Old Testament. There are many instances. You'll also remember that there is a New Testament precedent for this that we often neglect. You'll remember, we talked about this last week when we took the Lord's Supper. I read from 1 Corinthians 11 where where Paul says, and this terrifies me, for if anyone, in talking about the Lord's Supper, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's, That's scary. That's terrifying. Paul's making it very clear that there were believers in the Corinthian church that were weak ill, and dead because of the way that they took the Lord's Supper. So we have to acknowledge and seriously consider that there may be times when we're facing illness as a direct result of our own personal sin. I fear, I'm certain of it, that we grow far too comfortable with our own sin. And we just presume upon the grace of God as if God doesn't really care that much because Jesus died for our sin. But with Jesus dying proves to us how much God does care and how seriously he takes it. But I still think, and hear me on this church, I still think we need to be very, very careful about drawing a line from our sickness to our sin. Okay? Be very careful about drawing a line from sickness to sin. And this brings me to the second part. Illness or sickness is not always a result of our sin. Okay, so sin may lead to illness, but illness is not always a result of sin. In fact, Jesus actually goes out of his way to make sure that people do not try to draw a one-to-one connection from their sin to sickness. Do you remember in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples passed by a blind man and the disciples asked, I'll read from John 9, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is making it clear that sickness does not necessarily mean that a specific sin is involved. And we also, can we not forget the story of Job, right? James has just reminded us of Job a few verses earlier, but the whole point of Job is that Job was a man who was innocent, and yet he was suffering. 
And the, the book of Job highlights the bad advice that was given to him by his friends who were saying, this is because of your sin. So we have plenty of reasons to recognize that sin is not, that our illness is not always because of sin. So if you're experiencing illness, don't, don't necessarily, don't, don't ruin your, your peace by assuming that there must be some sin there. We'll talk about this in a bit. I want to leave this with clarity. But we need to recognize both truths, I think. That sin can be, but is not necessarily a direct result of a specific sin. So instead of wearying ourselves with trying to trace back to some specific sin, I think instead we should recognize that sickness, this is the third point, that sickness can be a means of grace. Sickness can be a means of grace. Is this not the whole point of the book of James, right? That God uses our trials. If we, we can put this into the broader context of James where we've seen that God works in our difficulties to change us and to make us like Christ. Our trials, whether it's sickness or financial problems or marital problems, our trials test our faith. And it's through that testing that God works to expose our weaknesses in our faith. And so as we endure, as we cry out to him for help and for wisdom, God works to, remember James 1, to perfect us and to complete us. That's what he's doing in your trials. We, we can't hear that enough. So instead of fretting over finding some specific sin, we should see our sickness as a time to examine our lives. To examine our lives. You see, we, you know, my goodness, ask my wife, if I get the flu, I go from this, I'd like to think of myself as a pretty strong guy, and I go to pathetic. I'm on the floor, I'm crying, bring me help, right? I mean, wives, you've seen your husband sick. They are leveled in a heartbeat, right? Sickness has a way of getting our attention and slowing us down. It's a way of reminding us that we're not as strong and we're not as great and we're not as young as we often think we are. So don't waste your sickness. Don't waste your back pain. Don't waste the doctor's appointment. Use it as a time of reflection. Let it humble you and remind you of the brevity of life and our utter dependence upon God. And pray that God would show you specific sins that you've neglected. Use, use your sickness as a time to examine your life, just like with the Lord's Supper. And then when you see sin, to confess. And then that's when we expect the forgiveness that James is speaking of. So let's seek to repent of all known sin. Perhaps God is using sickness or an injury to reveal an idol in your life. Maybe that ache is to reveal your need for him. And in his grace, he loves you too much to leave you alone and successful in your sin. Let's remember the whole context of James and, and let's not despair when we face sickness and difficulty. Let's not forget, remember James 1, it's a command to consider it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Even though we can face our trials with joy, there should always be a part of us that is sobered by the reality that our own sin, humanity's sinfulness, has caused this mess. 
The only reason that sickness exists is because of sin. The only reason back pain exists is because of sin. There was no disease in the Garden of Eden. There was no illness before the fall. Eternal life was God's plan for us. Sin and sickness was our choice. This brings us to the final point, reminding us that sickness reminds us of the disease of sin. Sickness reminds us of the disease of sin. And whether or not God in his wisdom chooses to grant healing when we pray for and anoint the sick with oil, we do know this. God has guaranteed spiritual healing for all who will look to him and cry out to him in faith. The Bible teaches that Christ came to the earth to heal the sick and to open the eyes of the blind. But we know that his ministry was not just physical healing. Christ came to take our sin. He came to conquer the disease of death. The physical healing that Christ did, because he did many physical healings, it was, it was a taste. It was a reminder to us of what the kingdom of God would be like. And Christ is reminding us that the kingdom of God will be like the garden where sin and death had no effect and no place. But before that could happen, before we could, could experience life without sickness, Christ had to take care of sin, which he did on the cross. Remember with me John chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, our trials and diseases and sicknesses should remind us of the sting of sin. But the sting of sin should remind us that Christ is the remedy. Lift your eyes to the Son of Man who is lifted up for us that we might be free from sin. And as you do, and especially during your trials, especially during your suffering and your sickness, remember the promise of Romans 8, 32. That he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he also not freely with him give us all things. You can trust him in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, I pray that you would bring clarity. In any place where there is confusion, let truth shine through and build our faith as your word dwells in our heart, we pray. Amen.